Now, what is kind of the secret sauce behind performance speaking? It's quite simply using your own personal experiences when you have felt some sort of emotion and then going to that source that creates. This is Outside Sales Talk, the best podcast for outside salespeople. I'm your host, Steve Benson, and we're here to chat with the world's top sales experts so that you can get their best sales tactics to level up your game. Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today, we're talking about performative speaking, the secret to sales success. It's a discussion with Robbie Crabtree, and really excited to have you here with us today, Robbie. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm super excited to, to jump into this, Steve, and just have a, a really interesting talk and hopefully deliver a bunch of value to, to all your listeners here. Awesome. Well, just by way of uh, introduction, Robbie has worked as an attorney uh, in his past career, and he's worked on over 100 high-profile cases, and he's also taught persuasive speaking at Southern Methodist University Law School in Dallas, Texas, and he's worked alongside some very well-known companies, Facebook, Google, Airbnb, Apple, Microsoft, consulting with them and, and really helping them uh, enhance their, their employees' speaking abilities. And uh, from those experiences, he developed the performance speaking philosophy, which is what we're going to be learning about today. So, Robbie, I guess let's start off with what, what exactly is performative speaking? So this is the philosophy that I kind of created and, and worked through as a trial lawyer, trying murders, capital murders, and child abuse cases during my time as a trial lawyer. And, and what I realized early on, and I learned this actually from a case I lost, and it was my eighth ever jury trial, but I lost a case that I should have won. And I heard the jury say something to the defendant and they, they told him, we know you were guilty. You know, you were guilty, but we believed you. And we felt like you meant it when you said you were sorry. And so we're giving you another chance. And that was that moment that I realized, oh, so logic and fact is not enough. And so what performance speaking seeks to do is to connect emotionally to our audience because that's what inspires that action and then create the logic and the reason on top of that because we want to combine those pieces, thinking of Aristotle's art of rhetoric type triangle with ethos, logos, and pathos. And so it's really looking at how can we take experiences we ourselves have gone through and felt some sort of emotion, whether that's from music, television, pop culture, whatever it may be, and reverse engineer that in terms of how we want to make our listener, our audience feel when we're speaking to them. Well, that makes a ton of sense to me. And, and do you still practice law? Or are you fully dedicated yourself to performative speaking and persuasive speaking? How, what's, that, uh, what's that lifestyle change been like? Yeah, so I pretty much left that behind. I still hold on to one or two cases that are, are near and dear to, to me. And those tend to be pretty serious civil rights violation type cases. But for the most part, I focus all my time teaching people this, this skill. And, and the reason is being a trial lawyer is very stressful, super high stakes. And at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is minimize risk. And I tell people like, that's a world that, that like, it's fun to live in for a while, but at a certain point, you want to start working towards like the better side. You want to work towards maximizing rewards. And the work I do now, it's actually about helping people to better themselves and get to a new level when it comes to speaking in their career and their, their personal life as well. And so there's just this difference. And to me, it's so much more fun working to maximize rewards than to minimize risk. And have you always been a strong communicator? How, how can someone develop these skills to become a stronger communicator? So, I mean, let's get something like straight right away. 
you're not born a great communicator. It is something that is developed over time. Now, some people are inherently better at it than others, right? Just like a basketball player. Some people have natural ability and some don't, but you can still improve it. So like to, to give you a little bit of context here, when I was growing up as a kid, I had both a stutter and a lisp. And so I really struggled to communicate and oftentimes didn't want to communicate for that reason, because I was ashamed, embarrassed. I didn't like the sound of my voice. I thought people were judging me. All those things that I think a lot of people struggle with, I struggle with. And it was a skill that took time to learn and develop. And so I think that it's absolutely a skill that is learned, practiced, refined, developed, and finally mastered. It really is kind of this, this stair-stepping process that you go through. Yeah, I think that's super important for people to know that this, you know, you often hear, oh, these skills are just natural. They're innate. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, babies, babies don't come out having these skills. I think some people just develop themselves as salespeople or as communicators or as, you know, whatever the thing they want to learn, they, they want to learn very, very little is, is just innate, I guess, some athleticism, but um, even, even sprinters, they practice all the time and they master their craft, right? So what, what about you? I guess how, tell me about the story. The, you know, it's a super interesting starting point of being a, a very poor communicator as a child with some challenges. What, what's the arc of development? What did that look like? What period of time did it take? Um, you know, how, what, what, in, what did you do to, to, to develop your skills? Yeah, so I think it really started to take a turn. And, and to your point, I will say this, you know, salespeople, th this is something that you can develop. Like this is something you work on. You, something inspires you to do the hard work and the research and the study and the practice to, to build this because those, those changes are, are so uh, monumental in that line of work. And when it comes to kind of my journey, I realized that I needed to get better at this. I didn't like not, not feeling confident when I was speaking. And so it really started to change in high school as I, you know, kind of came into my own, I was a good athlete. So that helped give me some more confidence. And so I basically put myself into positions that I was uncomfortable with. I ran for student council positions. I forced myself to give speeches. I got on stages in theater and different pieces like that, just to, to force myself to overcome this. As a result, what it led to is I started basically running these incoming student sessions at my school for five, six, seven, eight hundred students and parents coming in. I just got very comfortable in that atmosphere. And then I went to undergrad and then I went to law school. And the truth is, in law school is where I really started to develop this because I was a part of that national mock trial team as a as a student there. And luckily for me, I had mentors and people who taught me these things, who were giving me kind of the roadmap that I followed. But it didn't just happen overnight. Like this, this is a process that has taken me realistically the last 10 years of my career in law school and as a trial lawyer, going super deep into studying storytelling and persuasion and influence and game theory and human psychology and all these pieces that really make you a great communicator. And then practicing them kind of like a comedian. I, I heard this, this story the other day from Kevin Hart and he was saying it will take him a year and a half of practice and refining before he ever puts a set out into like a full on tour, because that's how long it takes him to prepare and get it ready. And that is a professional comedian who is making tens of millions of dollars. I saw this the other day too, is Picasso is credited with 50,000 pieces of art that he created over his lifetime. And yet we only know a handful of them because that's what it takes to get better. You just keep putting in the reps. The same is true as a speaker, as a salesperson, as a communicator. 
you put in the reps, you get better, you take those inputs and you create better outputs. And what are the differences between performative speaking, persuasive speaking, and just being a great speaker? What, what do you, how does that break down and where do you use different ones? So just being a great speaker, I think is just like how you sound. Do you sound like a great speaker? Persuasive speaking is the ability to actually move people to take some sort of outcome, right? And performative speaking to me is kind of a combination of both those. I want you to sound like a great speaker, but also have the strategy of that persuasive piece to move people in that way. And the reason I call it performative speaking is if we think about the, the word performative, it means of or relating to performance art. And the, the root word performativity means the ability for words to bring about change. And that's really what I think it boils down to. Now, what is kind of the secret sauce behind performance speaking? It's quite simply using your own personal experiences when you have felt some sort of emotion and then going to that source that created it. So it could be a, a movie or a television scene. For instance, when I was trying a murder case as a defense attorney, I was trying to convince a jury to find him not guilty of murder. And the scene that I used to use, like to reverse engineer from, was in the West Wing. It was uh, an episode called Take the Sabbath Day. And I looked at this conversation that one of the characters had with a rabbi and looked at the music, at the lighting, at the pacing of the conversation, at like the word choices they used. In fact, the theme of that conversation was vengeance is not Jewish. I ended up using a, a take of that in my own closing argument saying vengeance is not justice. And so the secret sauce is reverse engineering from things that we ourselves have felt. So we know exactly how to move somebody in that way when we're speaking to them. And ultimately in that case, it worked because the jury came back and found that client that I was defending not guilty of murder, even though it was on video and he admitted to killing his brother, but we were arguing self-defense. And that's what I was trying to convince them around to let him go home to his family. And ultimately by reverse engineering that from an experience I had felt from emotion I knew, I was able to connect it to the jury. Yeah, we uh, we wrote a an article a couple of years ago. I think it was the fifty best sales movies of all time, and and even just watching like the great sales scenes from those movies, and you know you can bring them up on YouTube. It, it, I think it's really instructive, and each one has a lesson, and uh, it, it's great to like look at the way some great directors and and uh, have have kind of taken this and, and, and kind of, you know, expressed with so much emotion, um, these different sales occurrences. And I think that that's a, you know, you can use that as kind of inspiration for your own performative um, sales experiences with some of these other people and stand on the shoulders of uh, the acting giants, I, I guess I would, I would say it is. It, it's so true. It's actually, there's a, Scorsese has talked about this where he actually took a scene from a taxi driver and basically like recreated it in one of his later movies. And I forget what movie it actually was, but he said it inspired him so much. Like he almost shot it frame for frame the same way. And so if you think, you know, I also love to point out like Kanye West, that man just remixes other, like he takes samples of other songs and builds on top of them. That's what we're doing as speakers too, is basically pulling our own personal inspiration swipe file and saying, how can I use this thing to connect with other people? And the reason it's so useful to use a lot of these like major movies or TV scenes because we know people connect to them, right? Like billions of dollars are spent to go and see the newest Star Wars. Well, if we know that billions of dollars are spent there, there's a pretty good reason, there's a pretty good way to think, 
hey, this is connecting to people. So what can I use from that to do the same as a salesperson, as a speaker? And that's, I think, kind of the, the fun piece where you get to bring in all these different art forms and like just kind of move them and curate them and, and manipulate them into like new and interesting ways to connect to people you're speaking with. Yeah, uh, really, really a great thought and to kind of use this as motivation. But do you have an example of, of uh, performative speaking being really impactful in an audience? Also, I mean, the, the biggest, the murder trial that I, I just kind of described, that's obviously a big one as well. I'll tell you too, there was one that I had where I was trying a, a child abuse case. I was actually a prosecutor at the time. And I remember thinking like, how can I most connect to, to the audience? And it was the most brutal child abuse case I'd ever seen. And I basically had to do multiple things in this case. I had to basically give them hope that there was going to be a better day for them because they were just crushed. And I also had to, to show them that there was hope for the victim in this case. And so what I did is, is I spent a lot of time trying to, trying to figure this out. And, and it's interesting because I'm going to use another West Wing reference here because it, it's my, my favorite show. I think Aaron Sorkin is absolutely incredible with the way he uses music and lighting and pacing and all these different things to really create vibes. But there's a scene in the West Wing where there's a, a bombing at Kennison State and a lot of people die. And President Bartlett is giving this speech. And the way that he starts that speech is joy cometh in the morning. Surely we have to hope so. And then he goes into kind of his speech talking about the, what happened, that people ran into the fire, all these different pieces. And I opened up this, this closing argument in this case with joy cometh in the morning. And I did it for multiple reasons. One, I wanted to basically shock my audience because I needed to hook their attention. But I also wanted to give them hope and give them hope for the victim. And so that continued to be my kind of theme throughout the entire closing argument that I was using, because I was trying to recreate the way that, that president spoke in that moment in the West Wing, because I was like, that was a tragedy, but he was also inspiring his audience to do better things in the future. And that's what I was trying to get my jury to do, is to realize, hey, the significance here is this person who did this needs to go away for the rest of their life, needs to go to prison for the rest of their life. But I also need them to feel like they were gonna be able to move forward and be hopeful that better things were on the horizon or else they would just shut down because I've seen that happen before. And I knew that that was, that was a real risk. And so by the end of this closing argument, the, I, it was around 10 of my 12 jurors were crying in their seats. And ultimately about an hour later, they came back with a life without prison, life in prison without parole verdict. And it was in large part. And, and I talked to them afterwards that joy cometh in the morning and the way it was delivered was kind of what got them there and what they were telling me. So it was uh, an instance where I was able to recreate that emotion from something I had felt in something I had seen. So I, so I, I guess to use this for salespeople, you would, you would say that they need to, a salesperson needs to think about the emotion that they want their, their customer or prospect to kind of feel like maybe if you, if you were selling you know, maybe it's safety and security, or maybe it's uh, nervousness and they need to do something. Maybe to think about the emotion they need and then find a find an example of, of, of someone else giving a speech or giving a talk and, uh, and kind of that, that, that caused that emotion to happen either in you or would cause it in most people. And then kind of borrow from that speech, borrow the, the ideas from it. So that you can uh, that you can recreate that emotion that you're trying to trying to get. Yeah, I think that that's very fair because what I like to think of when it comes to sales 
is we kind of have to answer two questions, right? Where, where is the person at currently, the, you know, the prospect, and where do we want them to end up at? And then we've got to build that bridge. And to me, the emotional part is that bridge. That's what takes them from where they are now to where we want them to be. Now, I think one of the biggest mistakes I see in, in sales is people thinking where I want them to be is to buy the thing. And that, that's obvious. Like we want them to buy it, right? But we never know what's going on in their mindset. We don't know what's going on with them that day. Like, are they in the right place to buy when we see them on that day? And so I tell people, we're not trying to actually reverse engineer from getting them to buy. We're trying to reverse engineer from the step before. That thing, that thought in their head that we know if they're thinking it, they may not buy it today, although there's a good chance they will, but there's a good chance they're going to buy it later. Maybe it's in a couple of weeks. Maybe it's in a couple of months where they say, you know what? We were talking about this idea and I remember thinking like, this would really be great. And I, I you know, I've, got, I've just got to go ahead and get that thing now. And I see that with my own personal work when I'm working with a lot of clients, I'll talk to them and kind of leave them thinking one way, like, wow, this would be great to figure out how to be a better storyteller, communicator as a founder, as a salesperson, entrepreneur, whatever it is. And it won't be the right time for them for whatever reason. They don't have the funds. They aren't at the right timing. You know, they're stressed out for whatever reason, but they'll come back two months, three months later and be like, Robbie, I, I want to go ahead and get started now. And so it's the idea of don't rush that process. Don't try to get to the outcome, try to get to that goal that sticks in their head so much that they can't get it out. Like they, they just can't remove it. It's kind of inception, right? Put the thought in, let it germinate, let it kind of marinate, let it grow. And then they'll come to you. Yeah. The taking through someone, taking a prospect through a very long sales cycle can be super challenging, but a lot of times, no matter what you do it, 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 in your sales cycle, it, it's just, it's going to take a certain amount of time and it's, it can be a super, super slow with one customer and super fast with another, with another. And I think that we saw that a lot with COVID, for example, really stretched out sales cycles, made them a lot longer. And so it became more important to think about, well, what's my, my goal in this next meeting might not be to close, but maybe to get them excited and hopeful that when they, when they are able to get back out in the field, that this is this is something that, like my, my product or my service is something that will assist them once their business is back on its feet. Absolutely, I think that's spot on. Uh, could you go over the framework of, of performer speaking a bit? Like, just like, you know, to, to help people understand, like, how do you approach this? How do you, how do you actually make it happen? What kind of breakdown piece by piece? Here's how, I would approach being more performative in my speaking, be becoming more persuasive. Yeah. So I have a five part framework that I use for this and there's always like frameworks within frameworks. So like, this is my big framework. This is what everything goes through. And then there can be several ones in between, but it's five parts. The first two are really strategy pieces and the next three are more tactical. So the first two it's what's my goal. And that's what we just talked about. It's that step before the outcome. What do I want to leave them thinking? in their head that's going to get them to the outcome at some point. They're, they're just not going to be able to get it out of there, right? And that's what we're trying to figure out. And we're trying to figure out like very specifically, what do you want them saying at the end of the meeting? That's the goal that we want you to have is like that level of clarity. Step two is what is the emotion they need to feel to get there? And so I think this is one where too many times people are just like excited. I'm like, that's, that's, not, that's not good enough. We've got to go way deeper than that. Like, why are they excited? The emotion isn't just like a one word emotion. Oftentimes it can be a, a series of three or four. It can be a phrase. 
It can be a longer descriptive kind of sentence around what that emotion is. I want them feeling like this is a no-brainer that's going to make their life better. And that if they don't take this opportunity, they're missing out on an advantage down the road. That's, that's a feeling like that's basically like FOMO or fear, right, of, of missing out. But it's more nuanced than that. I think that's what people need to develop. And then we think about when have I felt that? And then we reverse engineer from there. Now, when we go to the tactical stuff, these three pieces are more around the structure of what you're actually saying. So it's what's your hook, what's your theme, and what's your dismount? Your hook is that opening line, that opening bit that grabs their attention. We can think of this a little bit like the cold open in like a, the office or it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Why? Like we need to get people to pay attention to us because like the saying goes, people judge a book by its cover. No, like we may say don't judge a book by its cover, but there's a reason we say that because people do it. So if we don't hit them with that hook right away, that first five, 15 seconds and say, this is worth your time. They're not paying attention. They're tuning out. They're thinking about what am I going to cook for dinner? When, when can I check my Twitter notifications? When can I look at Instagram or Facebook or get on the dating app or whatever it is? Because that's just human nature these days. Then, so that's why the hook is so important. The theme is that central idea, that big takeaway, right? It's, it's, if we think about it in terms of speeches, it would be the I Have a Dream by Martin Luther King Jr. It'd be the ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country by JFK. It could be Amanda Gorman's We Will Rise from her inaugural poem. These are all examples of a theme that stick with you. In fact, if we want to think themes in pop culture, it's may the force be with you, live long and prosper, right? The boy who lived. These are themes that stick with us so we remember them. And that is your North Star. And the reason I say that's your North Star is because that's where everything is focused on. Your entire talk when you're in there. So many people get lost when they're not on a script because they don't know how to stay focused. Your theme is your North Star. It basically tells you, hey, here's what I'm pointing to. So everything should be pointing back to your North Star throughout the entire, the entire pitch, the entire talk. That's what we want them leaving remembering because people don't remember much. So let's focus on making sure they remember one strong thing. Then the last piece is that dismount. And just like a gymnast, you can do everything right. But if you fall on the dismount, your score goes down and you're not going to win. So we want to make sure we know what our ending is. And that we have it solid because so many people end their talk or their pitch with and so or so yeah, or they just run out of steam and just kind of trail off. It leaves a really weak impression in that other person's mind. So the reason this is so powerful is because if we know our theme is our North Star and we know our dismounts, our destination, it's very easy to navigate and stay focused to get home. Yeah, that, that that makes a tremendous amount of time sense to me. What, what what about over the phone? How how do you how does this change if you're speaking to someone over the phone as opposed as opposed to being in person with them? So obviously, over the phone, you you miss out on some of the cues that we like to see as you know in person, where we can see body language, facial expressions. We can kind of read when someone's getting ready to ask us a question or interject. It's tough on the phone, so let's just be upfront about that. But that means you really have to pay attention and elevate the way that it's coming out of your voice. So you need to be very aware of your tonality, aware of your pacing. You need to make sure you give it enough space. So if somebody has a question, they feel comfortable asking it. You really want to make sure that conversational tone gets ramped up because you're not getting all these other cues. And you want to make that person feel like you're very warm and inviting and there to listen to them, that you're not distracted in any way. And so this takes a level of, again, you've got to practice that tonality. You want to be speaking at a very calm pace. 
And honestly, you as silly as this is going to sound, you should be speaking as though you were looking at them face to face. When you're speaking, you want your voice to sound more warm and inviting. Smile as you're speaking. It will change the, the tone of your voice. And you can move around. You can walk. You can still gesture with your hands. Like I take almost every call with headphones in so I can use my hands and be moving around as though somebody was right there in front of me. Because all of a sudden that elevates the pitch of our voice that comes out and makes that person more engaged because there's more dynamics. And this goes into the idea of musicality when it comes to speaking. Musicality is these wide range of dynamics in the way that we speak, just like music has. And what it essentially creates, if we think about it, music sticks with us, right? We can remember lyrics of songs for, for decades oftentimes because it triggers a creative side of our brain that stores that inside of us. When we're speaking, too many people are flat, monotone, and there's only one pace and there's nothing that changes. It doesn't get stored. It's just a drone. It's white noise. It's something that puts you to sleep. When you have these big changes, though, speed, volume, pacing, cadence, rhythm, all of a sudden it starts to stick out. And when you're on the phone, you really need to elevate those to make it sing. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's listening to you speaking just throughout this whole interview, you have a very uh, a great way of the, the sound of your voice, the way you carry it up, you carry it down. It's you, you it is more uh, tonal, I think, than a lot of people's voices. Is that something you worked on? Or um, is that something you think about? Or is, is, have you made that a habit? So it's absolutely something I worked on. And a lot of that is just like any athlete, you know, a LeBron James, uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, whoever it was, would go and watch game tape. They would watch themselves and see what was going on. I mean, one of my favorite things I've ever seen is when LeBron James just like dissects piece by piece by piece what happened in like two five-minute runs in the game that he just played. I have to do the same thing. I've got to watch. I've read my transcripts. I watch videos of myself. I listen to podcast recordings because I want to be seeing, am I doing the things that I should be doing? And how can I elevate those further? So I developed it just by practicing and then watching it back and seeing what's working, what's not. And what you'll find is some things now I do instinctively and some things are done with a specific purpose. If I know I want to really emphasize a certain point, I'll make sure that I build up to that and land it in some way, whether it's a big pause, whether it's building up a lot of rhythm to, to and pacing to basically show the excitement and the anticipation and the passion behind it. Using things like rule of three and other rhetorical and oratory techniques to really drive home points. So I start to do some instinctive, but a lot of it is also intentional because I know what my bigger moments are. And, and what is that? What is the rule of three and what are some other oratory um, tricks of the trade that you think are useful for salespeople? Rule of three is just people love threes. Like it is just, it is, it, it's actually a thing. And, and so anytime you can use a three, it's easier for them. It feels more substantial than two. And it, it's not too many where it gets lost. I mean, if we think of four, if you have four things to remember, oftentimes you'll mix up two and three and you're trying to say, so focus on which one was two, which one was three, but like a three is super easy. And we see it everywhere. We see it in pyramids. We see it in three branches of government. We see it in trilogies, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like we see it all over the place. Like once you start realizing it, it just becomes apparent. It's everywhere. And it is one of those techniques that it just sticks in the human brain. It's a very easy way for our brains to store that information. And it, it, it's really nice because in that rule of three, you can play around a lot with your cadence and your rhythm to, to try different ways of approaching it and make it kind of come to life and sing. So that's a big one, I would say. Another one, 
that I love is what I call floating opposites. And you saw me do it earlier in this, this podcast. It's minimize risk versus maximize rewards. It's this idea of you're doing one versus like, so you're, you're really trying to separate this gulf between the two of them. So you can say, you know, reduces, reduces stress and raise it like, and, and increases income. So reduces and increases allows you to play around with these two ideas. So even though it could be very small changes, it feels very large because you're using these two terms that are wildly different to one another. Then we, we have things like one and like the other, where it's, it's, two make sense. And then the third one that comes to you, or it could be five of them where you're just like, these are all things like you're, you're ready. You're in this rhythm. You're like, yes, 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 yes. Huh? And the reason we want to do that sometimes is because it grabs your attention and focuses on that last one. So that's another one that we can use. Repetition is super powerful. Alliteration is very useful as well. And so these are some of those techniques that we want to use to make it easier for our audience to remember. Alliteration is absolutely great. I mean, like I have frameworks for pitching, right? And I call it the three Ps and it's purpose, passion, potential. Why is it three Ps? Because that's very easy to remember. It's a rule of three and it has the alliteration. And so you just start playing with these pieces where it's, you make them memorable and sticky so that the person can't get it out of their, their brain. Some very powerful strategies right there. The, uh, the next section in our podcast today is sales in 60 seconds. So quick questions, quick answers. Um, so Robbie, what's the, what, what is one of the hardest things about adjusting your speaking style to performative speaking? You have to do work on the front end and a lot of people aren't ready for that. So you need to create a story bank. You need to have an inspiration list. You need to do some preparation work. And as one of my friends who used to be the speechwriter for General Petraeus and General Mattis, uh, Justin Mikuloy says, preparation creates precision. And that's really what it's about. So if you want to be a great performative speaker, you need to do some of that foundational work ahead of time. And uh, I guess describe some of, if you, if you were going to be coaching, if you were going to coach a field salesperson about some, some preparation to uh, adjusting their speaking style to being more performative. Well, what would, what would be some, some of those preparation uh, recommendations that you would make? First off, I'd want them to have anywhere between five to 10 stories that they can use at, at the drop of a hat and just identify exactly which one to use to highlight the point that they're trying to make because stories move people. They connect that they create oxytocin and dopamine in our audience, which creates a connection between the two of us. So I would do that. And I also most likely almost every person I know needs to slow down and use more pauses intentionally and deliberately when they speak to let their points really sink in, especially salespeople. Salespeople love to speak really fast. They think if they speak fast, they show more command of the material. But the problem is the listener can't keep up most of the time. And if the listener can't keep up and they feel like they're being just like pushed to just listen to what's being said, they're not actually taking it in. And letting it land with them. So that would be kind of the early pieces I'd work with any, you know, sales, field sales person if I was coaching them. Great advice. Uh, in your opinion, do sales reps need to incorporate performative speaking to be successful? Or is it, is it something that they're all, they're likely all the successful ones are already doing to some degree? My guess is a lot of them are doing it to some degree, just because instincts and practice kind of leads you down that route. But there's a difference when you really put that thought into it and you start really understanding the dynamics and how best to use them. When you do that, what you see is just, it's a little bit like the matrix 
where it just opens up. And now all of a sudden you're just seeing ones and zeros everywhere. And you can start moving those pieces around where before, yeah, you were getting lucky sometimes, but the problem is we want repeatability so that you know that it's predictable too the result you're going to get time and time again, because you know exactly which levers to use as a speaker. So when it comes to it, I mean, I think anybody will improve myself included. I'm still improving. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent of the way there either, because that's the beauty of this. You can never reach perfection, but you can have perfect moments. And what are the mistakes people make here? What, what are, what are the things that people do that lowers the level of performance in their speaking? So, so many people, I think, and, and this is true for salespeople, is they focus on feature, 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 and they focus on logic and reason and think, oh, if I just give people the reason, if I give them the logic, they'll go the way that they should. And the truth is humans don't make decisions that way. And salespeople know this, but they still forget it when they're speaking because we fall into like what's familiar to us. And it's easier to go into this like, well, I'm just going to give you all the logical reasons you should do this thing. And so I think that's probably the biggest mistake and not understanding how their delivery actually affects their ability to sell. sell. And that could be conversational skills, active listening skills. That could be body language and the way that they approach and communicate and connect with that person. All of this, people want to buy from people. And they especially want to buy from people that they like and trust. So we need to be focused on what is our presentation? What is our connection to that other person doing for that sale? Because oftentimes people are saying the right things. They're just delivering them the wrong way. And, and what about someone who gets nervous when they're speaking? What would your advice be to someone who, who just doesn't feel comfortable when they're giving their presentations? That's a tough one. And people deal with that a lot. And I'm going to use a, a sports metaphor. So this, we just had the Euro 2020 uh, soccer championship, right? And it went down to penalty kicks to decide it. Well, every player on that field looked at the same ball at the same spot with the same, same kind of, you know, stakes on the, on the line. Some of them looked at it and said, I want nothing to do with that because I see this as a chance to fail. I'm nervous. Whereas other people are like, I want the shot. Put me up there. I want to take it because I see the reward and I see the, the ability to be a hero. The situation's exactly the same. The energy just gets called two different things. One group calls it nervousness. One group calls it excitement. So if you're nervous and you tell your, like, if you feel that energy and you call it nerves, guess what? You're nervous and it's going to affect the way you present. If you feel the energy and you say, look, this is, a, this is excitement. I have an opportunity now. You're going to perform better. And the truth is a lot of this stems from this idea of imposter syndrome oftentimes of like, ah, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be the one speaking. Imposter, imposter syndrome, in my opinion, is a signal that you are onto something that's going to help you grow. And, and that's what life is all about professionally and personally is growth. And so when you feel that lean into it and the only, I mean, Elon Musk didn't know what he was doing when he created SpaceX. Like he didn't know, no civilian like started their own space company before that, but he just did the thing. And no, no one, you know, no president has ever been present before their president. So like they can't be comfortable in that setting. So like, we're all pushing ourselves to new boundaries and new goals. And we just kind of have to embrace this, that, that energy and that feeling is part of it. And we just got to push through. I've heard people say, if you don't have imposter syndrome, you're just not trying hard enough. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, what's your favorite speaking tactic? I would guess that it's the pause just from listening to you talk, but what's your favorite one? 
I mean, I think for the, the most bang for your buck is the pause. It's just super powerful. But if I was going to say anything in all honesty, when it comes to, to speaking, it's just being a great storyteller. Like, and, and I get that that's a little bit different than like a, just a, a speaking kind of technique. But if you can tell great stories and, and, and do it well, uh, there is hardly anything that you can't achieve. And I mean, we see this in, you know, really terrible ways in history. We see it like with Theranos, which continued to just raise, you know, millions of dollars, even though their product didn't, didn't make any sense and couldn't do anything because it could tell a story. There's a reason why Steve Jobs is so, so loved. There's a reason why, you know, presidential candidates use storytelling. So I would say for me, my favorite piece is actually storytelling, but the most effective tactic that I've come across is just that pause and using it really intentionally and really well to the point, honestly, that oftentimes it's uncomfortable. And, and as a speaker, and one of the things to remember is as a speaker, when you're in silence, we give ourselves about 30% of the time that the listener will give us. So oftentimes we rush through that thinking, oh, the listener must think this is a really awkward pause. It's almost always very, very short for the listener. So we can always kind of take more. Yeah, I, I love the, the question that like, I just let sit out there and make them actually answer it that almost should be a rhetorical question. Like, is it important to you to save time? <laughs> like something that's just obvious to everyone that they they would say yes or no but like make them actually say it that's one of my favorites what what makes a great story to you what are the what are the elements of a great story sure so i think for me my, my favorite stories have adventure adversity and triumph and if you can sprinkle in some humor that's where you kind of get a lot of magic uh and i i say that i call that my go-to story framework because that adventure gets to you're basically showing like you've done cool things, which people like, but they're entertained because they're a story. So it doesn't feel like you're bragging. And then the adversity shows you deal with struggles. You deal with obstacles. Like your life wasn't just given to you. Good things didn't just like magically fall out of the sky because people want to root for the underdog. It's why we love movies like the Rocky series, right? It's why we love movies like Gladiator when Maximus gets, you know, thrown into the slave pits and has to build himself out of there. Like we love the underdog story. That's just the nature of, of who we are. And then that triumph allows you to demonstrate that you overcome it. And when we're thinking about stories, we want to show people that we're the type of person that can face hardship, can face some sort of obstacle and figure out a way to, to get past it, to overcome, because that makes them trust us to say, hey, I like people that see adversity and find a way to get through it and continue to better themselves. And humor is in there. That's more of like a it's nice to have if you can do it, but humor is just such a nice way to build that connection between us and the audience. And it just really elevates a good story to a great story. And the whole point of a, a go-to story is to inspire action in some way in your audience. And that's where I, I draw the line between telling a story and being a storyteller. Telling a story is just for entertainment. Being a storyteller is about using stories to inspire action in your audience. And as a actionable takeaway, how can field salespeople get started on incorporating performative speaking into their sales cycles, into their meetings? The first part is answering those questions that we talked about earlier on is where, where is your prospect at right now and where do you want them to end up at? And then thinking, what's this bridge that I can basically build through the emotional arc that's going to take them there? And if we start putting that level of thoughtfulness into our approach as, as salespeople, as field salesmen and saleswomen, then you're able 
to start making changes. And what you'll find is as you start thinking about that more, you start seeing it in other sources and you'll start taking notes. You'll, you'll be watching something and you'll open up your phone and be like, I've got to write this down. There's a great scene from Tommy Shelby and Peaky Blinders. This is perfect. Like I can use this. And you're going to just start finding these things where like all of a sudden what you weren't paying attention to before, now you are. Because what you start to realize is almost every input that we have, if we do it intentionally, we can then use it as some sort of output to help us get better, especially in our role as a salesperson. Fantastic advice. And I'll, I'll look up that, uh, that, I think if I just Google Badger uh, best sales movies, I'll, uh, it'll come up, but I'll, I'll put the link in the, in, the, in the show notes too, so people can kind of get some ideas of great sales moments that they might be able to emulate a little bit. Well, Robbie, I will attempt to uh, summarize the stuff that you've taught us today. This, is, this has just been fantastic. First of all, performative speaking is about connecting emotionally to your audience and then working to create the logic and reason on top of that connection. Performative, performative speaking includes both great speaking and persuasive speaking so that people are moved to take an action. Take experiences that you've gone through and then reverse engineer them so that you can influence, influence how we make people feel, right? Understand where the prospect is at now and where you want them to be. And the bridge is in between the emotion that we want them to feel. Um, that's how you can bridge to, to getting to them to where you want them to be by really touching on that emotion. Uh, where we want your, your prospect to be is in a mindset that pushes them to buy and, and touching on that emotion that gets them there. The performative speaking framework has five steps. First step, what's my goal? This is the step before the outcome that will get prospects to act. Second step, what's the emotion I want them to feel? And that's the, the emotion that gets the prospect to actually act. So this is where you, where you, if you can, if you can really get this, then you, you get them to, to actually take action. The third step in the performative speaking framework is what's your hook. And, the, and, and, and so this is how you get your prospects to pay attention. Fourth, what's your theme? And this is what sticks with your prospect. And it, it's your North Star. It's what guides your speaking. And five, what's your discount? You know, this is, this is the close. You always have to have a strong ending, always have a next step. If you speak with prospects over the phone, focus on using your tone of voice, your pacing, and don't forget even about body language because the, it, it impacts the energy of the conversation, the way you, your body language is and smiling when you're talking, things like that. Robbie practiced recording his speeches to go, to go back and to understand better how he could use his tone of voice, his body language, and, and all of his speaking tools to impact his audience. So giving great speeches is like, and persuasive speeches is, is, is like any other sport, right? It's, it's practice, practice, practice. It's, it's studying your, studying your tapes, it's, it's rethinking how you can do it better next time. Robbie, this has been fantastic. Where can 
our listeners read more about your work? Where can they learn more about you and what you teach? How, how do they reach out to you? Sure. So there's a number of ways. So I write on my website, which is robbiecrabtree.com. You can go to, to the blog there where I write regularly on speaking, storytelling, sales, uh, all, all those sort of things that would interest the listeners here. Then they can, of course, reach out to me at on any of my socials, which is at Robbie Crab on Twitter and on LinkedIn and Instagram. It's at the Robbie Crab. Then if they want to find out more about performative speaking, they can just go to performativespeaking.com. That will give them insight into what that program looks like, helping people to build this skill. And the last piece is if anybody wants to email me and talk more, they can always do so. It's Robbie at RobbieCrab.com. Well, this has been a great episode of the Outside Sales Talk. If you work in field sales, you'll love Badger Maps. The number one route planner helps you sell 20% more and drive 20% less. And you can get a free trial at badgermapping.com today. If anyone can think of the other sales reps that would benefit from all this great stuff that Robbie's taught us today, definitely share the love and forward this on to them. Robbie, thanks so much for coming out and take care until next time, everybody. Thanks for having me.